Section 16 of the Journal of Lewis and Clark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Journal of Lewis and Clark by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Chapter 14. Some Account of the Chippewyan Indians. They are a numerous people who consider the country between the parallels of latitude 60 and 65 north and longitude 100 to 110 west as their lands of home. They speak a copious language which is very difficult to be attained. The notion which these people entertain of the creation is of a very singular nature. They believe that, at the first, the globe was one vast and entire ocean inhabited by no living creature except a mighty bird, whose eyes were fire, whose glances were lightning, and the clapping of whose wings was thunder. On his descent to the ocean, and touching it, the earth instantly arose, and remained on the surface of the waters. This omnipotent bird then called forth all the variety of animals from the earth, except the Chippewyans, who were produced from a dog and this circumstance occasions their aversion to the flesh of that animal, as well as the people who eat it. This extraordinary tradition proceeds to relate that the great bird, having finished his work, made an arrow which was to be preserved with great care, and to remain untouched, but that the Chippewyans were so devoid of understanding as to carry it away, and the sacrilege so enraged the bird that he has never since appeared. They have also a tradition among them that they originally came from another country inhabited by a very wicked people, and have traversed a great lake which was narrow, shallow, and full of islands, where they had suffered great misery, it being always winter, with ice and deep snow. At the Coppermine River, where they made the first land, the ground was covered with copper, over which a body of earth has since been collected, to the depth of a man's height. They believe also that in ancient times their ancestors lived till their feet were worn out with walking, and their throats with eating. They describe a deluge when the waters spread over the whole earth, except the highest mountains, on the tops of which they preserved themselves. They believe that immediately after their death they pass into another world, where they arrive at a large river, on which they embark in a stone canoe, and that a gentle current bears them on to an extensive lake, in the center of which is a most beautiful island, and that, in the view of this beautiful abode, they receive that judgment for their conduct during life, which terminates their final state and unalterable allotment. If their good actions are declared to predominate, they are landed upon the island, where there is to be no end to their happiness, which, however, according to their notions, consist in an eternal enjoyment of sensual pleasure and carnal gratification. But if there be bad actions to weigh down the balance, the stone canoe sinks at once, and leaves them up to their chins in the water, to behold and regret the reward enjoyed by the good, and eternally struggling, but with unavailing endeavors, to reach the blissful island from which they are excluded for ever. They have some faint notions of the transmigration of the soul, so that if a child be born with teeth, they instantly imagine, from its premature appearance, that it bears a resemblance to some person who had lived to an advanced period, and that he has assumed a renovated life with these extraordinary tokens of maturity. 
the Chippewyans are sober, timorous, and vagrant, with a selfish disposition which has sometimes created suspicions of their integrity. Their stature has nothing remarkable in it, but though they are seldom corpulent, they are sometimes robust. Their complexion is swarthy, their features coarse, and their hair lank, but not always of a dingy black, nor have they universally the piercing eye which generally animates the Indian countenance. The women have a more agreeable aspect than the men, but their gait is awkward, which proceeds from their being accustomed nine months in the year to travel on snowshoes and drag sledges of a weight from two to four hundred pounds. They are very submissive to their husbands, who have, however, their fits of jealousy, and, for very trifling causes, treat them with such cruelty as sometimes to occasion their death. They are frequently objects of traffic, and the father possesses the right of disposing of his daughter. Footnote. They do not, however, sell them as slaves, but as companions to those who are supposed to live more comfortably than themselves. End footnote. The men in general extract their beards, though some of them are seen to prefer a bushy black beard to a smooth chin. They cut their hair in various forms, or leave it in a long natural flow, according as their caprice or fancy suggests. The women always wear it in a great length, and some of them are very attentive to its arrangement. If they at any time appear despoiled of their tresses, it is to be esteemed a proof of the husband's jealousy, and is considered as a severer punishment than manual correction. Both sexes have blue or black bars, or from one to four straight lines on their cheeks or forehead, to distinguish the tribe to which they belong. These marks are either tattooed, or made by drawing a thread, dipped in the necessary color, beneath the skin. There are no people more attentive to the comforts of their dress, or less anxious respecting its exterior appearance. In the winter, it is composed of the skins of deer and their fawns, and dressed as fine as any chamois leather in the hair. In the summer, their apparel is the same, except that it is prepared without the hair. The shoes and leggings are sewed together, the latter reaching upwards to the middle, and being supported by a belt, under which a small piece of leather is drawn to cover the private parts, the ends of which fall down both before and behind. In the shoes they put the hair of the moose or reindeer, with additional pieces of leather as socks. The shirt or coat, when girded round the waist, reaches the middle of the thigh, and the mittens are sewed to the sleeves, or are suspended by strings from the shoulders. A ruff or tippet surrounds the neck, and the skin of the head of the deer forms a curious kind of cap. A robe, made of several deer or fawn skins sewed together, covers the whole. This dress is worn single or double, but always in the winter, with the hair within and without. Thus arrayed, a Chippewyan will lay himself down on the ice in the middle of a lake, and repose in comfort, though he will sometimes find a difficulty in the morning to disencumber himself from the snow drifted on him during the night. If in his passage he should be in want of provision, he cuts a hole in the ice, when he seldom fails of taking some trout or pike, whose eyes he instantly scoops out, and eats as a great delicacy. But if they should not be sufficient to satisfy his appetite, he will, in this necessity, make his meal of the fish in its raw state. But those whom I saw preferred to dress their victuals 
when circumstances admitted the necessary preparation. When they are in that part of the country which does not produce a sufficient quantity of wood for fuel, they are reduced to the same exigency, though they generally dry their meat in the sun. Footnote. The provision called pemmican, on which the Chippewyans, as well as other savages of this country, chiefly subsists in their journeys, is prepared in the following manner. The lean parts of the flesh of the larger animals are cut in thin slices, and are placed on a wooden grate over a slow fire, or exposed to the sun, and sometimes to the frost. These operations dry it, and in that state it is pounded between two stones. It will then keep with care for several years. If, however, it is kept in large quantities, it is disposed to ferment in the spring of the year, when it must be exposed to the air, or it will soon decay. The inside fat, and that of the rump, which is much thicker in these wild than in our domestic animals, is melted down and mixed in a boiling state with the pounded meat in equal proportions. It is then put in baskets or bags for the convenience of carrying it. Thus it becomes a nutritious food, and is eaten without any further preparation, or the addition of spice, salt, or any vegetable or farinaceous substance. A little time reconciles it to the palate. There is another sort made with the addition of marrow and dried berries, which is of a superior quality. End footnote. The dress of the woman differs from that of the men. Their leggings are tied below the knee, and their coat or shift is wide, hanging down to the ankle, and is tucked up at pleasure by means of a belt, which is fastened round the waist. Those who have children have these garments made full about the shoulders, and when they are traveling, they carry their infants upon their backs, next their skin, in which situation they are perfectly comfortable, and in a position convenient to be suckled. Nor do they discontinue to give their milk to them until they have another child. Childbirth is not the object of that tender care and serious attention among the savages as it is among civilized people. At this period, no part of their usual occupation is omitted, and this continual and regular exercise must contribute to the welfare of the mother, both in the progress of partuition and in the moment of delivery. The women have a singular custom of cutting off a small piece of the navel string of the newborn children and hanging it about their necks. They are curious in the covering they make for it, which they decorate with porcupine quills and beads. Though the women are as much in the power of the men as any other articles of their property, they are always consulted and possess a very considerable influence in the traffic with Europeans and other important concerns. Plurality of wives is common among them, and the ceremony of marriage is of a very simple nature. The girls are betrothed at a very early period to those whom the parents think the best able to support them, nor is the inclination of the woman considered. Whenever a separation takes place, which sometimes happens, it depends entirely on the will and pleasure of the husband. In common with the other Indians of this country, they have a custom respecting the periodical state of a woman which is vigorously observed. At that time she must seclude herself from society. They are not even allowed in that situation to keep the same path as the men when traveling, and it is considered a great breach of decency for a woman so circumstanced to touch any utensils of manly occupation. Such a circumstance is supposed to defile them, 
so that their subsequent use would be followed by certain mischief or misfortune. There are particular skins which the women never touch, as of the bear and wolf, but these animals the men are seldom known to kill. As these people are not addicted to spirituous liquors, they have a regular and uninterrupted use of their understanding, which is always directed to the advancement of their own interests, and this disposition, as may be readily imagined, sometimes occasions them to be charged with fraudulent habits. They will submit with patience to the severest treatment when they are conscious they deserve it, but will never forget nor forgive any wanton or unnecessary rigor. A moderate conduct I never found to fail, nor do I hesitate to represent them altogether as the most peaceable tribe of Indians known in North America. There are conjurers and high priests, but I was not present at any of their ceremonies, though they certainly operate in an extraordinary manner on the imaginations of the people in the cure of disorders. Their principal maladies are the rheumatic pains, the flux, and consumption. The venereal complaint is very common, but though its progress is slow, it gradually undermines the constitution and brings on premature decay. They have recourse to superstition for their cure, and charms are their only remedies, except the bark of the willow, which being burned and reduced to powder, is strewed upon green wounds and ulcers, and places contrived for promoting perspiration. Of the use of simples and plants they have no knowledge, nor can it be expected, as their country does not produce them. In their quarrels with each other, they very rarely proceed to a greater degree of violence than is occasioned by blows, wrestling, and pulling of the hair, while their abusive language consists in applying the name of the most offensive animal to the object of their displeasure, and adding the term ugly and chie, or stillborn. Footnote. This name is also applicable to the fetus of an animal, when killed, which is considered as one of the greatest delicacies. End footnote. The snowshoes are of very superior workmanship. The inner part of their frame is straight, the outer is curved, and it is painted at both ends, with that in front turned up. They are also laced with great neatness, with thongs made of deer skin. The sledges are formed of thin strips of board, turned up also in front, and are highly polished with crooked knives, in order to slide along with facility. Close-grained wood is, on that account, the best, but theirs are made of the red or swamp spruce fir tree. Their amusements or recreations are but few. Their music is so inharmonious and their dancing so awkward that they might be supposed to be ashamed of both, as they very seldom practice either. They also shoot at marks and play at the games common among them, but in fact prefer sleeping to either, and the greater part of their time is passed in procuring food and resting from the toil necessary to obtain it. They are also of a querulous disposition, and are continually making complaints, which they express by a constant repetition of the word, Idui, it is hard, in a whining and plaintive tone of voice. They are superstitious in the extreme, and almost every action of their lives, however trivial, is more or less influenced by some whimsical notion. I never observed that they had any particular form of religious worship, but as they believe in a good and evil spirit, and a state of future rewards and punishments, they cannot be devoid of religious impressions. 
At the same time, they manifest a decided unwillingness to make any communications on the subject. The Chippewyans have been accused of abandoning their aged and infirm people to perish, and of not burying their dead. But these are melancholy necessities which proceed from their wandering way of life. They are by no means universal. For it is within my knowledge that a man rendered helpless by palsy was carried about for many years with the greatest tenderness and attention till he died a natural death. That they should not bury their dead in their own country cannot be imputed to them a custom arising from a savage insensibility, as they inhabit such high latitudes that the ground never thaws. But it is well known that when they are in the woods, they cover their dead with trees. Besides, they manifest no common respect to the memory of their departed friends by a long period of mourning, cutting of their hair, and never make use of the property of the deceased. Nay, they frequently destroy or sacrifice their own as a token of regret and sorrow. End of section 16